Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for organising this event and for uh, inviting me. And I was really happy to take part because uh, 1968 uh, to 2018, it's not just the 50th anniversary of the Fulton Report, it's also the 50th anniversary of William Armstrong becoming head of the Home Civil Service. Uh, and it is the 80th anniversary uh, back to <laughs> 1938 of William Armstrong joining the Civil Service. Um, now, William Armstrong is central to the Fulton story. Um, he formally took over uh, as head of the Civil Service a little bit before the report was published uh, on the 1st of May 1968, uh, based at that point in the Treasury as Joint Permanent Secretary on the pay and establishment side of that department. Uh, his appointment had been announced in January 1968, and the Prime Minister had actually made the decision on it in the immediate aftermath of the devaluation of the pound in late 1967. So I think as Jim Callaghan was moving to the Home Office after devaluation, uh, Harold Wilson was deciding to make William Armstrong head of the civil service, or the next head of the civil service. Uh, but Armstrong then moved across in November 1968 to become the first permanent secretary of the newly formed civil service department. And the creation of that department is one of the central recommendations of the Fulton Report. William Armstrong is, of course, a key figure in the conspiracy theory that is peddled by the apostles of the Fulton Report, blaming what they see as the patchy and half-hearted implementation of its main proposals on civil service sabotage and obstruction. Norman Hunt, um, who was a member of the Fulton Report, uh, uh, Fulton Committee, co-authored a book called The Civil Servants with Peter Kellner. And they have a chapter in that book uh, which is called How Armstrong Defeated Fulton, which really sums up their case uh, against him. He is the main villain in the story of what they call in the next chapter the lost reforms. So those headings are very revealing. And they give you chapter and verse, really, on William Armstrong's so-called rearguard action, his undermining of key reforms uh, to the civil service class structure. And this is a narrative about William Armstrong that became quite well established. Hugo Young wrote, when William Armstrong died uh, in 1980, let me quote the following, in anaesthetizing Fulton while retaining his reputation as a progressive-minded man, William Armstrong demonstrated perhaps the highest measure of his finesse as a public servant and private operator. Now, I think there is a lot in the view that William Armstrong had a clear idea about what he wanted to do about the Fulton Report. And he saw that the things he cared about happened after 1968, and he let progress on the rest lose momentum, peter out uh, eventually. And it's certainly true that um, Armstrong always refused to treat the Fulton Report as the public administration equivalent of the Bible, tablets of stone. We, we've got copies of the report here, prove it is written on paper, uh, for instance. Mm -hmm. William Armstrong was very clear. He felt Fulton 
provided a basis for reform, but it didn't cover the whole ground. It was only a part of the process of reform and adaptation that the civil service needed. William had very clear ideas that the civil service needed reforming, a senior colleague of his told me in the writing of that book. But he felt Fulton hadn't got it all right. There were good parts of Fulton and bad parts of Fulton. Now, William Armstrong was one of the great civil servants of the 20th century, and he was a fascinating and charismatic and complex and compelling and also rather elusive personality. Uh, and I've got some photographs which I'll just flick through as I give you a bit of background on the man himself. Uh, even 20 years ago, I wouldn't have needed to explain who William Armstrong was, but he's rather lost into history now. But he is, for a certain generation of civil servants and, dare I say it, historians, a compelling and central character. Um, not just for Fulton, but for the whole story of British government from the 1940s to the 70s, the Heath government, the economic policy making of the 50s and 60s and so on, all set out in that fantastic book over there, which you can buy at any decent bookshop. Um, but anyway, there's first of all the extraordinary background of William Armstrong as the son of working class Salvation Army officer parents. And there he is uh, with his mother and on the far left as you're looking at it, his father, Colonel William Armstrong and his, his younger brother. Um, working class Salvation Army officers uh, winning a place at Oxford as a brilliant scholarship boy. Um, he joined the civil service, as I said, in 1938, originally in the Department of Education. And he once said that the rather hit and miss process by which he joined the civil service and his own early experience in it, particularly the absence of any formal training, um, influenced his thinking about the reforms of the civil service he helped to introduce years later. He was talent spotted fairly early on. He worked on domestic security coordination uh, in a body called the Security Executive for the first part of the Second World War, liaising with MI5 and MI6, etc. Um, and then he was um, uh, taken under the wing, picked out by Edward Bridges, one of the great civil servants of the century, cabinet secretary, to work as Edward Bridges' private secretary. Uh, and it was in that capacity that he went, for instance, to the Potsdam Committee. And this is a fantastic picture with Stalin, um, Truman, Attlee and Bevin, and in the background of the little table taking the minutes which were flown each day by Spitfire from Berlin to Whitehall, so the cabinet could read them. He's taking the minutes there, he's distinctively left-handed, sitting next to Sir Edward Bridges, the cabinet secretary, in a pose that I'm sure Richard must have adopted in several cabinet meetings. What on earth am I going to write in these minutes? And one of the other great giants of post-war Whitehall, Norman Brook. So that's a fantastic picture. So Never has so much civil service talent been been set on a little rickety table in a, in, in a room in Potsdam as, 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 as there. Um, he was Edward Bridges' private secretary then. After that, he moved across to the Treasury in 1946, heading its machinery of government branch. And then he was picked out 
and served as very influential private secretary to three successive chancellors of the Exchequer, Stafford Cripps, Hugh Gateskill, and Rab Butler. So he was at the centre of economic policy making in the late 40s and early 50s in a, in a remarkable way. He then rose up through the ladder of overseas finance and head of home finance until in 1962 he spectacularly leapfrogged several more senior men uh, to be uh, appointed in succession to uh, Richard's father-in-law, Frank Lee, as permanent secretary to the Treasury on the economic policy side of that department, aged just 47. One of the more spectacular promotions of 20th century Whitehall. And he held that post as permanent secretary at the Treasury. Oh, there he is with um, Gateskull and Butler. Um, he held the post of permanent secretary to the Treasury um, for uh, six years. A dominant figure in the Treasury in the 60s, the indispensable, brilliant, uh, soothing and reassuring uh, figure at the Chancellor's right hand. Uh, Reginald Maudlin said, one always felt if Armstrong was behind you, it couldn't be so bad. Um, but he also worked inevitably, uh, as you'd guess, um, there's that soothing, enigmatic uh, figure. He also worked very closely, obviously, with Harold Wilson um, uh, and Ted Heath, uh, uh, different prime ministers. And later in his career, this is after Fulton, uh, got involved in some very controversial uh, episodes, uh, working with Ted Heath uh, on economic policy, industrial policy, the miners' strike, uh, a, such a close advisor to Heath that he was dubbed Deputy Prime Minister um, after this particular episode, when in Lancaster House announcing the Heath government's prices and incomes policy, Armstrong appeared at the front on the platform alongside the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. An extraordinary public thing to do for a, for a civil servant. Anyway, 1968, Lawrence Helsby, who was the head of the civil service, was due to retire. And as I said a few minutes ago, William Armstrong was picked by Wilson to succeed him. I think William Armstrong positively wanted that job at that time, with Fulton coming up. He wanted a change from the economic battleground of the Treasury. He was attracted by the idea of becoming a reforming head of the civil service with a separate department to support him in that role. He was actually critical of his predecessors as head of the civil service. He felt that Norman Brooke, who was head of the civil service from 1956 to 1963, had failed to get to grips with the management side of the civil service for the understandable reason that he was also secretary at the cabinet and at the beck and call of the prime minister all the time. But Armstrong felt much of the need for Fulton came out of that uh, absence of leadership on the management side of Whitehall by uh, Brooke. He also believed that under Helsby, inadequate thought was being given to the problems facing the service. And I think uh, Helsby was not a very radical, dynamic figure uh, by all accounts. 
um, and uh, Armstrong thought he could do the job much better than, than him. He deliberately cultivated uh, a high profile as head of the civil service. He made himself more available to the media than his predecessors and than some of his successors. He believed in personal leadership, in exposure and visibility. He left the day-to-day -day job of running the civil service department to the department's second permanent secretaries, and there was a sequence of them through his time. And he concentrated initially on Fulton and on representing the civil service to the world. So he was, for instance, the first head of the civil service to give a television interview quizzed by Robert Mackenzie. On the day that Fulton was published, he gave interviews on both the television channels of the time. Um, uh, he also did the round of civil service trade union conferences. Again, the first civil service head to do so. He made speeches. He mixed informally with the delegates. He knew that working closely with the civil service unions was an important part of implementing Fulton. And he wanted to keep relationships with them very good. He did a lot of television, radio, press interviews, sometimes speaking on quite odd topics for head of the civil service, like sex education. And he would get into hot water with some of the other permanent secretaries and the newspapers of the time. He strongly believed, I think, that civil servants should be prepared to explain more about the workings of government and join in public debate on policy issues. And he was rather impatient with the whole tradition of anonymity or facelessness in Whitehall. And within limits, and he was a permanent secretary after all, he was an open government man, um, certainly compared to some of the others. Now, no bureaucratic reform is possible without strong support from within the machine. William Armstrong, in 1968, described the Fulton Report on its appearance as, quote, a great opportunity. But with Mandarin circumspection, um, he was careful not to declare public full support for its recommendations. He went on television and he called it an icebreaker. The report is an icebreaker, he said. And what he meant by that, he explained later, was that it was a catalyst. Fulton allowed all sorts of ideas to come through. He'd given himself very influential private evidence to the Fulton Committee in July 1966. Behind the scenes, he was very involved in the to-ing and fro-ing that went on before publication over the detailed wording of some of the recommendations and some of the uh, passages of the report um, that went on between the committee and number 10 and the treasury as Harold Wilson and the treasury and others tried to get some of the proposals and recommendations modified. He also informally helped Lord Symey, who was a member of the report, he informally helped Lord Symey put his note of dissent to the report together, a note that attacked the criticisms of civil service amateurism as unfair and inaccurate. And because he's a brilliant Mandarin, he did all of that without a paper trail. There's nothing in William Armstrong's private papers about it. There's nothing in Siamese papers, which are held in the University of Liverpool Library, about it. But other civil servants at the time, people who knew William Armstrong, knew that he was active and 
encouraging of Simi, who didn't need a lot of encouragement, actually, <laughs> to dissent from the report. And Simi's note of dissent is actually a very uh, good three or four pages of, the, of that report, better than the real chapter one of Fulton. Now, the Fulton report did not um, constitute a coherent program for reform. Some parts of it could be dismissed uh, as C.H. Sissons, um, a poet and a top civil servant, uh, dismissed it at the time as, quote, like a page out of a fashion magazine, as he wrote in The Spectator. Many of Fulton's uh, detailed proposals were, in fact, not very original or radical. There were plenty of shortcomings and weaknesses and ambiguities in the report. It wasn't simply a question of accepting the report and then implementing it. Uh, what actually happened, Richard Wilding always said, and Wilding was the secretary of Fulton and then a senior uh, CSD official, what actually happened was that William Armstrong and the Civil Service Department made a perfectly genuine attempt to take the Fulton report and extract the maximum number of practical proposals they could. Ten years after Fulton, in 1978, Armstrong was asked in a television interview whether he'd seen himself as defending the civil service against Fulton's attempts at change. And William Armstrong replied, well, it has to be yes and no. I mean, in a lot of ways, I felt I was there to pull the civil service into the 20th century and or to reform it in ways that appeared to me necessary over the years. And in other ways, I felt the attacks on it were unfair and it needed to be defended. So there was an initial burst of activity in 1968. There was the creation of the Civil Service Department. There was the creation of the Civil Service College, which Armstrong was always a bit disappointed about in terms of how it worked out in practical ways. And over the th two or three years after 68, there was the reorganization of the Civil Service class and grading structure. And that was an area of particular controversy around Fulton, the civil service class and grading structure. Armstrong was always prepared to admit that the old system of classes made for a civil service that was only half open to talent and there was a need to get rid of artificial barriers and the structure needed to be simplified and so on. But he always felt that common or unified grading from the top to the bottom of the service was um, uh, an impractical proposal. But that was, of course, what the Fulton radicals wanted. He later described, Armstrong later described uh, unified grading as, quote, a hell of a great pig in a poke. He led a delegation from the CSD to uh, the United States and Canada to study their experience with it. And he and other officials formed the view that beyond a certain point, it wouldn't work. Harold Wilson, of course, had pledged quote, the abolition of classes. And William Armstrong always argued that that was something that was effected by the removal of the horizontal barriers that impeded movement up the ladder from, say, executive grades into the higher administrative grades. Um, and below the undersecretary grade, which was in those days the third level of the hierarchy, Armstrong believed that um, dismantling the vertical barriers between specialists, technicians, um, scientists, and so on was impractical. 
it'd be very expensive, it would increase the salary bill, uh, and there were union vested interests to consider in the, in the structure. Um, and although the open structure arrangements, the top three grades, which in those days were permanent, deputy and undersecretary, that was put in place, the open structure after Fulton, that was always presented as a sort of first step. But Armstrong persuaded uh, Ted Heath and Lord Jellicoe in 1971-2 not to take unified grading any further. Unified grading was almost always really a sort of article of faith uh, with the Fultonites, but it was always going to be a complex and lengthy process. And I think William Armstrong was wise in deciding to proceed by stages rather than trying to go too far, too fast uh, on a large scale. The early years of the Civil Service Department were a pretty optimistic, pretty dynamic period. Armstrong once told James Callahan uh, that he had been the only one of the senior officials in the Treasury before 1968 that had wanted to split civil service management away from it. Uh, and I think under, under William Armstrong, CSD was really expected to work wonders. Um, implementing the post-Fulton reforms, working on the important machinery of government changes uh, of that period, all placed it centre stage. It attracted able staff, it boosted the importance, the effectiveness of personnel management in the civil service, and William Armstrong really dominated the department. He was the head, I was his political advisor, Lord Shackleton, who was Labour's civil service minister, would joke. And there was a lot of activity, a lot of impetus and progress from the CSD until about 1971-72, after which the reform process rather lost shape and momentum and certainly got downgraded on the agenda. And a number of things were happening at that time, to, which explains that, I think. Armstrong started personally to lose interest and was increasingly uh, and controversially diverted into running economic policy under Heath and being Heath's key, key advisor. Um, that was an important, an important thing. He talked of the need to draw a line under Fulton. But I think to blame him for obstructing or defeating Fulton oversimplifies, overpersonalizes uh, the process. Ultimately, I think the Fulton reformer's disappointment can be explained by, the, by a number of things. There's the interaction of union and uh, official self-interest. There's the lack of clear uh, principles and goals in the report itself to guide the reforms. There's the lack of sustained ministerial and political interest at the implementation stage. There's the change of government in 1970, which brings in a Conservative Party um, at a critical stage in the implementation of Fulton, a Conservative Party that has its own ideas about the civil service and its own interest in reforms, which are more about machinery and departmental architecture than about the organisation and running of the civil service. And really the limitations of William Armstrong's scope were quite acute. Um, 
there was the vested interests of the civil service unions, an important constraint. They were asserted in the National Whitley Council uh, machinery that was used to discuss and oversee implementation of change in a consensual way, quite different to the way Mrs. Thatcher did it uh, two decades later. And then, because Whitehall is a federation, because of the federal character of government and the civil service, progress with the reforms depended on the ability of the civil service department to persuade, cajole, negotiate with Whitehall departments. And there was pretty weighty permanent secretary opposition to parts of Fulton and scepticism about parts of Fulton. So there was a whole array of different perspectives and interests. And William Armstrong worked within that, trying to develop a consensus that could be implemented, that was practicable. And to some people, he may have looked a conservative figure, trying to defend the status quo. But in fact, he encountered opponents and doubters who felt he was pressing for too much change. So he was, in a word, practicing, like Rab Butler, the art of the possible in Whitehall. Um, in the end, maybe I'll, I'll finish here, if that's all, if that's all right, yes. given the, the timing. In the end, I think several years before Mrs. Thatcher abolished it in 1981, the problems involved in having two central coordinating departments in Whitehall, the Treasury and the Civil Service Department, and then also the Civil Service Department's limited power in relation to other departments had become very apparent. Um, William Armstrong always, to the bitter end, defended the setup he had designed in 1968. And in fact, he wrote a letter to the Times defending the Civil Service Department two days before he died in July 1968. His last public act um, in a, uh, it's quite uh, touching in a way. But there's a sense in which William Armstrong's personal power, his personal influence and authority, had masked the Civil Service Department's institutional weakness. People always went up to him and said, oh yes, you of course, with your background, you bring the power with you. What's going to happen when you're not there? Well, we saw what happened when he wasn't there. William Armstrong's departure in 1974 weakened the headship of the civil service in terms of running the civil service, let alone reforming it. And it left the civil service department in looking increasingly vulnerable as his two successors, um, first Douglas Allen and then Ian Bancroft, discovered until the department was then abolished in, in 1981, uh, a, a sign that Mrs. Thatcher, rather than perhaps the civil service uh, as an organized uh, institution itself, was going to be calling the shots on management and reform. <coughs> well, I think I will stop there. I could say much more about William Armstrong, not just in relation to Fulton, but on other subjects too. But I think... Um, that's uh, in, in, enough of a, of a sense of his role and his contribution to these issues.